Beginning in the early 9th century, just like the rest of Francia, the Frankish vassal state of Brittany in the far northwest came under intense and sustained attacks from Scandinavian raiders. Unlike the more prosperous hinterlands of the Frankish elites, the remote coastal territory of Brittany had to mostly go it alone against the newcomers, which it did for the next hundred years and more amidst periodical bouts of dynastic squabbles of its own. Brittany's Viking Age was an epic struggle, seeing the embattled Celtic inhabitants of the region attacked from all sides, and even conquered outright for over two decades by an incoming Scandinavian warrior elite. Yet it was also a struggle that saw the re-emergence of a strong and unified Brittany cementing its newfound position as one of the major players of northern France over the coming centuries. In the wake of the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century AD, the Frankish tribes who usurped the administration of Gaul eventually managed to form the most powerful successor state. Though, unlike the Roman office of Caesar, which went hand in hand with ruling over the entire realm, the Franks still practiced the ancient custom of patrilineal inheritance divided between sons. Meaning that upon the death of a ruler, no matter how great their success is in unifying or expanding the kingdom, his lands would almost always be divided between rival sons. The great Carolingian ruler Charlemagne was no exception, and though he attempted to give sole control to his son Louis the Pious, the tradition was simply too ingrained for a power struggle not to play out, especially after the vast expanses of new lands brought under Frankish control by Charlemagne. This fratricidal struggle and the gradual collapse of the Carolingian Empire coincided with the coming of a ferocious new power. A power that was all too happy to exploit the divided states they found on their southern flank. The age of the Vikings had begun. Upon the official division of Charlemagne's Francia into two autonomous eastern and western kingdoms in 843, each ruled by its own independent king, it didn't take long for formerly autonomous regional areas to stake their own claims for independence. In the history of France up until this point, few areas had been as independent-minded as Brittany, many of whose inhabitants were themselves descended from exiles fleeing from the Anglo-Saxon conquest of Britain during the 5th and 6th centuries AD, and still spoke their own distinctive Gaelic language, as well as retaining their own unique culture, unlike that of the Franks. In November 845, amidst Frankish dynastic squabbling over the territories and rulers of the fragmenting Carolingian Empire, Nomino, the leader of Brittany, 
led an army to do battle against the grandson of Charlemagne, who had inherited West Francia, Charles the Bald. At Ballon on the 22nd of November, the Bretons, mostly consisting of highly mobile mounted horsemen fighting on their home turf, made light work of the Franks, defeating them entirely and driving them out of Brittany. Unable to give up on the region, Charles continued to periodically send armies, though ultimately he simply couldn't commit enough men due to the other fronts he was forced to fight on. Hostilities continued to flare up until a peace treaty was finally signed in 849. After Nomino's death in 841, the Franks seized the inevitable instability following a ruler's death to return for yet another attempt to subjugate the Bretons. Yet, despite their best efforts, at Jengland in August 851, the Bretons again emerged victorious. This time, the Franks were forced to sign a peace treaty which guaranteed Breton independence under nominal Frankish overlordship. Though with the concession that the Breton ruler would be given a new title. Thus, Nomino's successor, Erisco, became the first King of Brittany in generations. Before long, however, a new threat reared its ugly head. As renewed Viking attacks tore through the kingdom. Due to the normalisation of Franco-Breton relations, the attacks were fended off at first, though soon enough, the Bretons' own unique brand of dynastic squabbling, a microcosm of the larger Carolingian power struggle, began to take hold, leading to increased levels of instability in Brittany. This was just the sort of instability that Scandinavians thrived on, and more and more began to involve themselves in. In 857, with the support of a band of Viking mercenaries, King Erisco was murdered by his own cousin, Salomon, who may have risen up on a wave of anti-Frankish resentment in order to seize Frankish territories as well as his cousin's title. The Frankish position was so weak by this time that Charles the Bald managed to only buy peace by giving the new ruler, Salomon, the province of Maine and the Catentin Peninsula. For a time, under Salomon's rule, the region enjoyed a relative period of peace. Yet, in overthrowing his own family member, Salomon had set a dangerous precedent. In 874, he was himself murdered in a conspiracy involving his own kinsmen, Pasquatan and Gervant. Before either of these men could claim power, however, civil war broke out between them, seeing them both dead by 876, but not before Brittany had been plunged into a bitter struggle between their successors, Alan and Judashal. In a momentary truce during the 880s, Alan and Judashal combined their forces to counter the increasingly bold Scandinavian attacks, now harrying their coastlines and river systems. In one of these attacks, at Questenbear in 888, Judashal was killed, leaving Alan as the last surviving claimant to the throne. He became King of Brittany as Alan I, a position he would hold for the next two decades. 
despite the newfound Breton unity, Scandinavian attacks continued throughout Alan's reign, now sweeping out of the river systems of the interior as well as the far north. In 884, when the king of East Francia, Charles the Fat, succeeded to all of West Francia besides Brittany, Alan's independent status as king was further cemented when he pledged his support. His position was further consolidated during the reigns of the next kings of West Francia, Odo and Charles the Simple, who both ruled over mere rump states around Paris and needed Breton support in order to maintain any kind of authority, much like Rollo and the Normans would do over the coming decades. In 907, however, Brittany's highest point was about to be followed by its lowest. Upon Alan's death, the succession was again disputed, leading to the ambitious Count Gormelian of Cornwall nominally seizing power. Within months, however, increasingly large bands of Vikings were active throughout the country, pouring into the region from their bases on the Loire and the Seine rivers, as well as from further afield. Attacks picked up dramatically, and upon Gormelian's death in 913, just as neighbouring Normandy was legitimately claimed by Vikings active in the region under Rollo, the entire country of Brittany was overrun by a warlord named Rognald. And as far as anyone was aware, the native Breton nobility was extinguished for good. All across Brittany, the pattern remained the same. Monasteries and cities being looted, and huge numbers of Bretons either fleeing across the sea to Wessex or to the Frankish heartlands to the east. For 30 years to come, Brittany became a hollow shell of its former self, stripped of its leaders and reduced to vassalage to foreign pagans. Unlike the Normans to the west under Rollo, who were legitimised by Charles the Simple in 911 and soon became vital allies to the French crown, the Breton Vikings continued to raid and plunder for as long as they held power, making little to no attempt to turn their new land back into the prosperous realm it once was. For them, Brittany was simply a cash cow and a staging ground for further attacks, which they launched both into Francia and across the sea. Most notably, two warlords named Rold and Ottir, launching an ultimately unsuccessful invasion of the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms of Wessex and Mercia. Among the nobles who fled Brittany in the 910s was a son-in-law of Alan, by the name of Matiodoi. Begrudgingly, he had put to sea with multitudes of followers, never to see his homeland again. His destination was across the Channel, to the ancestral homelands of his people, now ruled over by the Anglo-Saxons. He arrived at the court of the Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Elder, son of Alfred the Great, to seek refuge, taking with him his young son, Alan, named after his famous grandfather. Little did anyone realise it at the time, but it was that exiled Breton nobleman who would finally return to Brittany in 936 to drive out the Vikings once and for all, and to save his homeland. Though in the dark days of the 910s, 
this future seemed little more than a fantasy. Whilst in England, Matthew Doy became close to Edward's son, Athelstan, who eventually succeeded his father as king in 925, an international ruler with a penchant for involving himself in the affairs of the continent. It was under Athelstan that a wide variety of princes from all over Europe were fostered at the royal court. Alan was raised alongside these other princes, illustrious figures such as the future kings Louis IV of France and Hakon the Good of Norway. As well as Athelstan's own younger brothers and successors to the throne, Edmund and Eadred. Alan received a fine education at Athelstan's court, as well as being regaled with tales of English heroes of old, such as the East Anglian king Edmund the Martyr, who had been killed by the Vikings of the Great Heathen Army in the 860s. For Alan in particular, these stories must have been close to home. Perhaps whilst playing with the other boys of Athelstan's court, all four of them destined to become kings of their respective countries, he entertained the notion of returning home to reclaim his kingdom and drive out the Vikings. By most accounts, Alan was a rigorous young man who often participated on royal hunts with the king. Perhaps most notably, he distinguished himself in the English sources as a fierce warrior. According to the contemporary Chronicle of Nantes, not caring to kill wild boars and bears in the forest with an iron weapon, but with a wooden staff. Meanwhile, across the sea, Brittany devolved more and more into chaos in the absence of its native nobility. The city of Nantes remained for many years deserted, devastated and overgrown with briars and thorns, whilst paganism took precedence over Christianity. Whilst the Vikings in Brittany continued to live in much the same way as they had for generations, using their territory as a staging post for raids launched further afield, over the sea in England times had changed and a strong, powerful kingdom was well on the way to being established by the successors of Alfred the Great. Alan was probably present in at least some of these campaigns taking place at the time, subjugating the other kingdoms of Britain and potentially even fighting in battle for the English king. Finally, in around 936, at the very height of his imperial power, Having subjugated not only his own Viking problem, but the Scots and the Welsh too, when a Breton monk arrived at Athelstan's court to beseech the king for assistance, Athelstan agreed, proposing to send his young friend back across the sea, now fully supported by an English fleet and an army. So, Reinforced with English thanes, Alan landed at Dol in 936. Together, he and his men quickly surprised and overcame a group of Vikings at a wedding, making an example of all the men present by executing them all. 
It wasn't long before downtrodden men from all over the territory rallied to his cause, forging a Breton independence movement. By 937, Alan was master of most of Brittany, forcing most of the Vikings back to their bases along the Loire River, which had harboured raiders for generations. The leaders of the Brittany Vikings, meanwhile, possibly including Rognald, retreated to their stronghold of trans la forêt in southern Brittany, where they held out for another two years. Finally, in 939, a combined force of Frankish, Breton and Anglo-Saxon soldiers finally attacked the fortress and eliminated the Viking threat for good. At the end of a 33-year period of foreign occupation, Alan, now under the name Twisted Beard, finally became ruler of Brittany. With his domain ruined by decades of occupation and war, Alan was not in a position to restore the kingship of Brittany. By 942, his childhood friend Louis had ascended to the Frankish throne, again with Athelstan's aid. Alan pledged his allegiance to Louis, paying homage and ceding over the territories of the Catentin, Avranchan and Mayenne. Yet Louis's reign was to be a difficult one. The position of king had devolved so much over the last hundred years that it was now close to being a puppet to powerful nobles. Chief amongst them was Count Hugh the Great, whose descendants, the Capetians, would eventually go on to rule France until the 14th century. Louis needed allies against Hugh's power if he was to ever exercise any real authority. Forging alliances with Alan, as well as Theobald the Old, Count of Chartres, and William Longsword, the son of Rollo and ruler of Normandy now fast becoming Frankified. By the 940s, as Normandy developed into a Christian principality to the east, and the Norse in Ireland continued to lose power against the native Irish king, the age of the Vikings was mostly over for Brittany. Though periodic raids did continue until the 11th century, with the last recorded attack taking place in 1014, the same year of the Great Battle of Clontarf, just outside of Dublin, which permanently broke the power of the Dublin Norse. By the mid-11th century, Brittany had largely fell under the sway of a new power, arising on the northern flank of France, the neighbouring duchy of Normandy, like Brittany, also made up of immigrants, but this time from Scandinavia. When the Normans under Duke William invaded England in 1066, Breton knights and foot soldiers made up a substantial part of the invasion force. Unlike the Normans, however, the Bretons were effectively returning to their ancestral homelands of five centuries before. Afterwards, many Bretons provided an integral role as landowners in William's new administration and the feudal society that was born. Today, around 800,000 people still speak Breton, making Brittany a remarkable and unique survivor of Celtic tradition, 
and the inheritor of 3,000 years of cultural continuum.